This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Catchley Morrison. And I'm Zach Meir on this week's show from Millennial to Millionaire, how to make the most of your savings. It, it really isn't rocket science to get there. We're joined by Meaningful Money podcast host Pete Matthew. But it does begin with some basic financial discipline. And Michelle McGrade, Chief Investment Officer at TD Direct Investments. Now that I'm not a millennial anymore, I do realise that if I started early enough, then you've got these nice nest eggs. I'm excited about the sharing economy. There's money to be made, but you must understand this is your money and your future at stake. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. Hello, welcome to this week's City AM Unregulated. This week, we are joined by the host of the Meaningful Money podcast, Pete Matthew, on Skype from Cornwall, and Michelle McGrade, Chief Investment Officer at TD Direct Investments, who is here with us in the studio. So today, with interest rates at a long-term low, we want to pick both of your brains on how even millennials with their tiny savings can become millionaires. At least, that's the dream. Should you be leaving your money in the bank or should you invest it? <laughs> what do you think we're going to say to that? <laughs> Actually, it all depends where you are in your life. And, and uh, so you've got to think of, obviously about your timings and your objectives and that sort of thing. Do you want to buy a house? Are you going to get married? Have you a child? Are you just trying to survive? Do you have loans? But actually... Before you think about bank or invest, I think you should think about your biggest asset, which is yourself, because you're the one with the career, you're the one earning the money, and therefore you should look at how you can best make the most out of yourself and your career, because that's probably where interest rates are at the moment. You know, you can try and go from bank A to bank B, but it's not probably worth your efforts, really. The the problem I remember from 30 years ago when I was actually young uh, is that I'd be earning two two or three grand a month and I'd be spending two or three grand a month or, or, you know, the same as whatever I was earning. The investment opportunity there, you know, unless I invest in a hot dog stand, I'm not going to be, you know, the investment, my my options are rather limited, let's well, say. Well, this is, this is the thing. This is why I'm saying that actually I think it's really good just to invest mainly in your career. Obviously, you're going to try and cut down on spending a bit so that you can actually save. But um, if you can invest in your career and you're doing well in your career and you get a salary increase, that's probably worth it. Uh, Pete, we're assuming that uh, um, I've managed to get a, a, a pay hike and I've got an extra £500 a month uh, from that pay hike. Um, my options are rather limited, aren't they? Well, yeah, I agree with everything that Michelle said. It depends what you're aiming to do. You know, in the intro to the show is how can, you know, folks, millennials become uh, millionaires it, it really isn't rocket science to get there, but it does begin with some basic financial discipline. So while I <laughs> entirely sympathize with the, well, I get the two or 3,000 quid a month in and two or 3,000 quid a month goes out, that's fine, but you will never be rich if that is the case. There has to be a change. Um, all of the questions and answers are moot, really, unless there is some excess money coming in uh, compared to what's going out. So to answer your question, Zach, if... There is an extra 500 quid a month coming in. What do you do with it? Well, the answer is always to put some buffer between you and uh, disaster. So we call that an emergency fund. There should be three, six months income, ideally, if you can get to that. It might take you two, three, four years to build up that amount of money. But there's an incredible sort of sense of peace that comes from having that 
financial buffer between you and the boiler blowing up or the car needing to be fixed or anything like that. Only once that's in place can you really start talking about investing. And so if, say, I'm completely new to investing, what's the first step? How do I get into it? Uh, the sort of original question, if you like, should you bank money? Should you put money in the bank or invest it? Money in the bank is not an investment fundamentally. Cash is not an investment. It's a mantra that I repeat endlessly on my show. A bank account is a place to hold money in the relatively short term. So it's money you might need. So if you're going to buy a house and you're building up a deposit, uh, if you're going to try and buy that house in the next couple of years, don't invest the money. Keep it in the bank because you don't want the volatility that is inherent with uh, stocks and shares investing. You want to just let that money, um, it won't grow very much, particularly not with interest rates where they are, but try and get the best rate you can. But that's what a bank account is for. Uh, most people who've, um, you know, people in their 20s and 30s who bought a property have done it via the bank of mum and dad or the bank of somebody who's died. And uh, so they get on they get on the ladder that way. And that's fair enough. And then what, you know, because interest rates are so low, they can then um, afford, you know, the, the, the mortgage on that. So that's, that's great. They're, they're happy. Um, in terms of other investments, which um, even somebody, you know, I, I'm not totally familiar with these things. You know, you have tracker funds, you have index, um, you know, emerging market funds, gold funds. Uh, can you get into those for 500 quid a month or 300 quid a month and, and drip, drip your money into them? Yes, I'll defer to Michelle in a second. But there's a question you need to ask immediately before that is what wrapper to use. So basically, for all ordinary people, it's ISA or pension, right? And if it's money you want to access before you are uh, retirement age or the state pension age minus 10 years, then the answer is it's got to be an ISA. It's probably the most tax-efficient vehicle un unless you're getting into the more esoteric world of VCTs and things. But you can access all those different things you just spoke about within an ISA. So an ISA is a tax wrapper, um, but you can get access to all those things within that. So that's the first question. Just find an ISA. Then it's about underlying investments. And Michelle, I'm sure has something to say about that. Yes, absolutely. So I agree with what you've just said there. Can I just defer back to pensions? Because if you are working and you're in a company that offers a pension scheme, make sure you're, you're putting money into that. Yep. If they put money in too, if you put a little bit more in, then grab that opportunity because that's a very tax-efficient way to grow some money. So that's another thing for you to think about. Have a look at your work scheme pension fund. But coming back to what you should invest in, it all depends how interested you are. And let's assume you're not interested at all. I think the best thing for you to look at is something that encompasses everything. So it invests in the world, it invests in a whole range of different asset classes. You tend to call those funds multi-asset funds. Sounds a bit grand, but actually you can find those and they do a great job. They invest around the world, they invest in different asset classes. They usually tell you something about their objectives and how much risk they take. So you can get lower, lower risk ones and higher risk ones. Uh, usually the lower risk ones have more bonds in them and the higher risk ones are more equity focused. But those are where I would start looking and then you've got a good diversified base to invest from. But, but what's the best case scenario from, from something like that? You know, let's say over the next five years I've, I managed to put in £20,000 into that. 
and then within 10 or 20 years that becomes what 100,000 or 150,000? Yes so the way I look at it is that talking the way you were talking earlier about I've got 500 quid extra a month well if you think of if you just save 100 quid of that a month for example that gives you 1200 a year if you compound that at I don't know five percent as a as a nice safe number, you could make at the end of ten years. You know you could be close to sixteen thousand pounds there, and you have invested twelve thousand. So there is a nice differential there, and the difference is, and that's I, I've just assumed five percent a year. But you think about it, I've since nineteen eighty six, equity markets have returned ten percent a year. Uh, bond markets have returned around about 8% a year. And cash, funny enough, has returned 6% a year. So these things do change, and that's an annualised basis over that period of time. So 5% is quite a a conservative amount to think about. Right, and what about the, I mean, I read about the ISA millionaires. Uh, maybe Pete can talk about that, but, you know, people who bought... Uh, aim stocks or um, other mining, you know, mining situations, or even, I mean, possibly, even, you know, property stocks. Twenty-five years ago, yeah. is that possible? Most people who are ISA millionaires, it's less about what they've actually invested in and the fact that they have consistently invested over many years. So ISAs were preceded by PEPs, which I believe was something like 1997. So if a couple uh, put in the maximum into PEPs and then subsequently into ISAs for the last what's that, nearly 20 years, then that's how most people become ISA uh, millionaires. It's more by consistent investing over time rather than what they've actually invested in underneath the bonnet. Michelle is right. For anybody starting out, a multi-asset, broad-based fund which invests a little bit in everything is absolutely the right platform, the foundation of any investment strategy. ISAs and pensions just make it tax efficient. You're looking to sort of remove the things which are dragging you back. So costs is one. So there are some very low cost multi-asset funds around. Tax is obviously a, a cost in its own right. So by reducing that, you're doing yourself a favor. You're trying to sort of stack the deck really um, by ticking off these obvious things to get right. But ultimately, it'll be about those things and consistent saving rather than whether you invest in property or equities. And what about... Um potentially investing in things that you you love, um, things you're interested in. So, for example, um, license plates, personalised license plates, are is that a good investment? You know, my answer to that is that if you already have your nice platform for investing and that is your stable money and you've got a bit of money that you... Un- and that you're interested in, you want to do something. So it might be licensed place, it might be a piece of art, it might be emerging markets or some AIM stock or whatever, then regard that as your risk money. And by all means, by all means, take an interest in it because, you know, especially if you're interested in it and you know a bit about it, then I, I think that's a good idea. But it's your risk money. Always think about it. And the way I think about risk money is I'm prepared to lose that money. So if I put in, I know, £1,000, I may never see that £1,000 again. Now, it's a bit of a hard way to look at it, but that's the way I look at those sorts of investments. But Definitely. Yeah, well, I would call that a satellite investment. It's exactly the same, same thing, uh, Michelle. So if you have a core of properly 
managed broad-based stuff and have things like license plates, wine, uh, art, or whatever you're interested in, have that as a satellite. It's around the edge and limit it to a proportion of the whole because that stuff is always volatile. It always is unpredictable and uh, very subjective in its value. So uh, only have that as a relatively small proportion of the whole um, and keep it sort of to one side. And as Michelle says, be prepared to lose it. But I mean, going back to the title of this podcast, millennials will need to become millionaires in order to have enough money when they're older. You'll, you know, most of us, I mean, in today's money, you'll need to have, if you, once you retire, you'll need to have at least a few hundred thousand pounds uh, in the bank or something you can sell easily, uh, like a house or like some shares. How, how are they going to get to that goal? What's, what's the, the, the best way from, from your perspective? Michelle? One of the things that I think that people should think about when they're investing is to think long term. Because one of the problems that people have, we all have it, is that when markets are volatile, we get scared and we sell out. And so you do all this good stuff, you lay the groundwork, you buy your fund, you, um, you're well set up for the future, and then the market falls. And what do you do? And what do a lot of people do is they sell. So I can give you an example. From 2005 to date... The market, just the FTSE all share, is up around 100% roughly. But during the period of 2008-9, the market fell 38%. Now that's a lot. If you sold, which a lot of people do at the bottom, then you'll never become a millionaire because you will have taken a loss, you'd have lost your confidence, and then you'll find it really hard to start again. And when will you start again? when the markets are are buoyant and everyone's talking a good story again. So you've got to be very grounded in your investment process and remember to hang on during those difficult times. So that's one tip I have. Peter may have another. Yeah, that's that's gold dust right there, what Michelle has said, because the difference between what the markets do and what investors get is what uh, an excellent advisor in the States uh, calls uh, the behavior gap. So the gap between what the the investments themselves are perfectly capable of doing over time for you and what you actually get depends on what you actually do. And it's our instincts to flee when things are not going well, which are the biggest factor in reducing our eventual uh, outgoings. I don't have the stats to hand, but there's all kinds of numbers where people say, okay, the investment return over 30 years is, you know, X percent. But if you miss just the 10 best days in those 30 years, it halves your return. So the answer is, you know, how do you, you ask the questions that, how does a millennial have enough money one day? It isn't ultimately down to what they're invested in, not for the most part, it's down to saving enough, early enough, and for long enough, I know that's easy to say, but hanging in there for the long term. So are houses still a good investment, Pete? Yeah, they're they're one of many good investments. They're different to anything else. Property is tangible. It's bricks and mortar. We kind of understand it. Um, Assuming, of course, we're talking about buy-to-let investing. Um, as opposed to property funds, which are different again. But yeah, it's a great investment. It's a yielding uh, investment, so it produces an income in the form of rent. It's not without its risks, but there's no investments that are without risks. So as long as you understand property and you go into it with your eyes open, as you should do with any investment, then yeah, it's definitely still a good investment. Maybe not in London. I don't know. I'm a long way from London. You mentioned there the um, buying to let 
is is that something that's open to first-time buyers? Theoretically, it's open to anybody. It's about buying a house so that you can rent it out for other people. So firstly, you need to be able to buy the house. So you can get a mortgage for that, but you still need a deposit. You'll probably need at least a 10% deposit to do a buy-to-let, maybe 15, depending on the mortgage lender. Um, so you know, if you can pull the deposit together and can borrow the money, then anybody can do it, uh, as long as you understand what the risks are and you're happy with those risks. But can I just say, you know, buying a property isn't just about buying to let, it's for you to live as well. And so it's that's a great investment because whatever once you've got that deposit down, which is the big thing to get and you if you've got a bank of mum and dad, that's brilliant. But once you've got the next thing to pay down that mortgage, etc., is just like rent. So you may as well do that because you're going to pay the rent anyway. So buying a house or an apartment or somewhere for you to live is a, is, is a great investment. And the thing that you need to think about is long-term as well, because a lot of people tend to think that property is, you know, is always going to go up in a straight line because it kind of has done. But there were times when I was a millennial when interest rates went up to 16% or whatever back in 89, and we were stuck with a flat that we didn't want anymore. And so you've got to remember those. So, so when you buy something, you've got to want something that you want to live in for a long time. Isn't there a problem that actually um, real estate has become a victim of its own success in the sense that people are just into that and they don't even, they're not interested in bonds or, or stocks or any other type of investment? They just say, I'm just interested in bricks and mortar. I'm not interested in anything else. And that has become that could be a problem for people in general. The problem is people have a romantic attachment to property because they can see and feel it. They can get excited about a property that they can perhaps paint and decorate to make it look nicer, whereas nobody gets excited about bond yields and shares and things like that. At least nobody you would want to go to dinner with. But because of that romantic attachment, some of the risks seem to be ignored uh, at worst or glossed over at best. So you know, you might be paying a mortgage on a buy-to-let property and you have a three-month period with no tenant. So you still now got to pay that mortgage, but you have no rent coming in. Um, interest rates are low now. That's not to say they always will be. Will the property still pay its way? Will the rent still cover the mortgage if interest rates rise? There are all kinds of regulatory issues. You've got to, you know, carbon monoxide monitors and boilers have got to be serviced, all that sort of thing. And there are ad hoc costs. Nobody who rents looks after a property quite like they do uh, if they owned it. So when your tenants move out, there's always costs uh, to be borne into account. But the biggest risk with property, which is fine as long as you have other assets, is liquidity. It's, so in other words, it's not easy to sell a house quickly. And you may not be able to get your money out if you need it. So if you've got all your eggs in that ba basket, as Michelle says, and you need to get some eggs out, you may not be able to if the property doesn't sell. So that's why it always makes sense to diversify and have money in other stuff, which is more liquid, more easily accessible. Um, okay, well then, on that note, and moving away from the property market, the sharing economy is obviously um, being embraced by millennials, um, possibly just because Uber gets people home at night. Um, 
But is that a good area to look into? Um, crowdfunding investments, uh, is that a good way to go? Sure, why not? It's one of many options and it's an exciting option, I think. But uh, everything we've said in the last five minutes holds true. It's it, 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 Understand the risks and the benefits of these things and take a view, but take a view of it in the context of everything else that you might be considering. Um, piling into one thing, thinking that it's a silver bullet is always a mistake. But I'm excited about the sharing economy. There's money to be made, you know, renting a room out on Airbnb, um, you know, uh, crowdfunding, stuff like Zopa and all these other ones. There's real possibilities there. Um, be aware of the protection that you may or may not have. Um, think about the worst case scenario. I know it seems like we're being a bit of a downer on some of these things, but you must understand this is your money and, and your future at stake. But Michelle, I mean, it, it, the good thing about these many of these ca- uh, sharing a- economy investments is that you're in at the ground floor. You, you can be in an early stage so that this is pre-stock market even in some cases, uh, then your returns would be that much better. The risk is higher, but the returns are potentially much greater as well. I consider these as uh, peripheral or satellite-type investment ideas, so you've got to be interested in them and take an active view in them because some of them are great and some of them are not so great. So I, um, I'm, I don't quite share the same enthusiasm of doing this sort of stuff, especially when you're new new at investment you've got new money uh you're just building up your wealth i think that uh, that feels kind of more on the risk side to me however i am very interested in the sharing economy and i'm very interested in companies that are doing better things for the world and making the world a better place these companies the sustainable type companies are now making a lot of money for their shareholders and they're making the world a better place. So do you know 25% of the UK now is um, run on alternative energy? And so this, uh, these companies used to be run by sort of scientists, you know, with uh, woolly socks and sandals and they didn't really have any investment idea, whereas now these companies have been run by smart, savvy businessmen and they're all women, and they're really making a difference in the world. And so sustainable, quoted sustainable investment, and even non-quoted, I think, are very exciting ideas. So, Michelle, um, we've talked about how millennials don't likely have a lot of savings. Why is a company like yours targeting these people with their meagre amounts of money? Well, they shouldn't. it's not necessarily my company. What they should be interested in is investing. I'm very passionate about the fact that they should be investing. And I'm one of those people, Pete, who sit at dinner tables and talk about shares because that's what I'm, <laughs> I'm really passionate about. So I think that what you realise, now that I'm not a millennial anymore, I do realise that if I started earlier enough, and actually I did because I... Um, invested when I was at university because I was always interested in this sort of thing so then you've got these nice nest eggs for when life when you move on in life and the other thing that I'd like to say is that you know remember I keep going back to it but remember yourself as your asset remember to put money aside for that rainy day as Pete said and you know you do need to invest because uh, you need to increase your, increase your wealth and prosper. So what's the future for people's savings? Are there signs of good things to come? Not really. <laughs> Not well, no. It, it's really difficult at the moment, but the one thing about it is that your money is safe in the bank in terms of physically safe. So it's there. It's uh, somewhere where you can put it. 
and away from your spending. So that's really important. But we would like to see interest rates normalise, definitely. I'm in that camp. If interest rates can normalise and not keep going down, that would be great. I agree. It's proof, again, that cash is not an investment. Money in the bank is not an investment. It's a short-term haul. We, nobody puts money in the bank to get rich. They put it there because they might need the money pretty quickly. Well, well as we go off to uh, check out whether we, we prefer to bounce on a mattress or uh, break open the piggy bank, uh, thanks to Michelle McGrade and Pete Matthew. Don't forget to check out his podcast for more investment tips. And remember, you can listen to City AM Unregulated on cityam.com or download via iTunes or Audioboom to listen on the go. City AM Unregulated is an Audioboom production.